0: This is the first ever edition of 10 Questions with Tim. Uh, Try to do this every other Thursday. And um, yeah, it's going to be cool. I think it's going to be cool. I hope you're here. I hope you're out there. I can't see just yet. Let's just uh, check out the chat here. You can see the window. Let me know in the chat below if you are here. YouTube.com slash Tim Hatch live. Got questions for you. And got answers, hopefully. but this is more informal. It's more uh, off the cuff, and uh, you can ask your questions below, and I'd be happy to take them and answer them uh, accordingly. So this is uh, whoops, let's uh, get some things ready here in place. So hello, everybody. I just got to wait a little bit longer. I'm going to wait a little bit longer, see where everybody is out there in internet land of course the weather is (laughs) beautiful and that makes for a empty chat right now the questions came in earlier so i'm sure that a lot of people are going to be watching this later but the questions came in earlier and i'm going to answer those questions and as we continue through the content if you have questions put them right below right here in the chat window Uh, or it might be to your right. So let us know if you've got questions as we get into the content. Anyway, let's get started since I'm here and you're here with 10 questions with Tim. Okay, this is an exciting moment. Uh, We're going to talk about your questions for me. and you say, well, what, what gives you the right to answer these questions? I've got a lot of ministry experiences, uh, over two decades, really three decades, if you count the years I was in ministry before it was vocational. Um, been studying the Bible for a long time, been studying culture for a long time, and I know that the wisdom of God is revealed in the scriptures. And so when I answer questions, it's important that we realize something. First and foremost is that it's not my answers that I wanna give you. It's not my ideas that I wanna present to you today. It's the answers and the understanding that God gives to his people through his word. And so, I'm just silencing my phone. And so, just so you know, when I answer the questions, I'm going to answer the questions as best as I can in accordance with God's word. Uh, That's what my heart is. That's what my desire is. That's what I love to do. I love to study God's word, and I love to present it to God's people. So let's get into it. First question on the docket comes from us anonymously at ask at timhatchlive.com. Here is the question. My oldest son is five and is starting kindergarten in the fall. He has no idea that homosexuality and transgender or transgenderism exists in this world. This is not something we can keep from him as he will start seeing this on his own probably very soon. How and at what age did you approach this topic with your children and how did you explain it to them? Uh, That's a good question. Yeah, it's tough. More than ever before, it's tough for us to understand how to unpack these realities to our kids. So a couple of things that you need to do as a parent on a regular basis is just (laughs) do exactly what i was talking about know the word and know the world know the word and know the world the great british preacher charles spurgeon said great preachers and theologians hold the bible in one hand newspaper in the other you're not just going to be all sunken into the scriptures you're also going to know what does god reveal in his uh in the world uh about the human condition um so homosexuality transgenderism this is nothing new in the world i know we think it is but it's not uh ancient cultures practiced these things particularly homosexuality it was a rite of passage uh in the greek world particularly for greek men uh it was almost expected that you would be sodomized in the greek world if you were growing up and transitioning from boy to manhood um there's actually some uh, documented evidence that this is still practiced amongst Afghanistan cultures, the cultures in Afghanistan. Um, and so these things are nothing new, and they're nothing strange to God. I understand that when we talk about these two issues, they are just two in any number of sins that the human race has committed and can commit against God. So I think, an understand, I think a conversation with your kid starts with saying— Uh, we believe the scriptures are true, and we believe that mankind is sinful, and that sinfulness, it unpacks itself or presents itself in any number of ways. Um, As a Christian parent, we have to be careful that we don't elevate one set of sins that maybe we don't struggle with or we think are particularly damning over any other sins, and that's Historically, what we've done as Christians, even the Pharisees and Sadducees did this. They elevated the sin of um, you know, not tithing and not attending temple above helping the poor and uh, fighting for the widow and the disenfranchised. So I think a, a conversation starts with what is the nature of sin? The nature of sin is to reject the authority of God. This plays itself out in every facet of our lives, how we handle our money, how we handle relationships, whether or not we forgive, whether or not we love our neighbor. And the heart of sin is putting us in the center of the world. The heart of sin is saying we are the most important thing on the face of the planet. And that's how you start to have a conversation even before they find out about homosexuality and transgenderism. So you're laying the foundation for the fact that there is a God in heaven who is perfect and righteous and holy, and then you have uh, mankind who is separated from God because of his sins. And you start that conversation at as as young as they can understand you speaking, <laughs> you know? Uh, I remember the first time that I led my my son in the sinner's prayer, I'll, I'll never forget, what did he say? He said something so funny. He's at the sinner's prayer, and then I asked him, and I said, how, did you, how do you feel? And he said, my belly hurts. You know, it was something, you know, kiddish. Um, but anyway, it was really fun to do that with my child but you have these conversations with a child that are that are i would call them uh macro level questions and then you can deal with micro level issues under that question so then when when homosexuality comes to their attention either through you and hopefully it is through you and not through the media because you need to have authority over what your kids are watching. You need to have authority over what they are reading. You need to have authority over where they are spending their time and who they are spending their time with. And so hopefully you're the one that broaches the subject with them. And then you show them from the scriptures that the issue is not homosexuality. The issue is disconnection from God because of sin. The issue is not transgenders and the issue is that all men are separated from God because of sin. And because of our separation from God, we tend to act very anti-God. Homosexuality is the rejection of God's authority over sexuality. Uh, transgenderism is uh, rejecting God's authority over gen, uh, over biology and our uh, sex. and we are rejecting and resisting Him. We do this through everything else that we do as sinners. Then point them to the Savior. Point them to Jesus Christ. Um, so you're very right in saying that you cannot keep this from him at some point. They're going to find out about it. And I think they're going to find out earlier than ever before. And it's going to get earlier and earlier and earlier as the, uh, the progressive secular movement continues to, you know, dominate education and dominate, especially elementary ed, uh, educated, uh, kids. I read yesterday, a school in Washington was handing out, uh, pamphlets to 11 year olds on, Um, how to have sex and how to say no to having sex and how to put a condom on and you don't need your parents' permission to buy a condom. I mean, the sexualization of minors is a serious problem in this culture. And the more we celebrate, the more we embrace, the more we (laughs) almost make as if it's the preferable lifestyle, this, 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 this overwhelming sexualization of the human race. Like not everything is sex. Uh, Sex is a very small part of your life, but, but this culture, you know, secular Western culture has made a God and an idol out of sexuality so, so much that it has become the very core of our identity. And then I think that's what you do is you, you constantly build in your child who an identity of who they are in Christ. So it's not about, hey, don't do that, don't do that. It's about, hey, here's who you are and here's who we are as a family. We are Christians. We honor God with our lives. Yes, we sin. Yes, we make mistakes, but he is author- He is the authority over our lives. I'm taking our church right now through the first three chapters of Ephesians because the first three chapters of Ephesians deal with who we are. And then the last three chapters of Ephesians deal with what we do. And, and so often as Christians, Christians, we think that Christian discipleship starts with telling people what to do when it really begins with telling people who they are. And so I think a lot of this, I, I'm kind of circling the wagons around this. the answer here, but you've got to have a, a, a whole life approach and a whole uh, biblical theological approach to every issue of crazy out in the world. God is in charge. We are not. God is holy. We are not. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. We receive him into our lives to repent. We repent and receive him into our lives as Savior and Lord. And then we, and then we repent from the, the sins of our lives. And then we talk about who we are in Christ. See, identity is only available. Biblical identity is only available to those who repent of their sins and turn to faith in Christ Jesus. So there, there, there's a, all that. Long answer to a great question. I hope that helps. But I think big picture is teach them about the nature of sin, teach them about who they are in God, and then bring up these subjects before the public school system does. Okay. Thank you for your question. Great question. Question number one. Let's go to question number two. Uh, Here's the question. How should Christians respond to the call for justice? While Absalom was using the issues slash complaints of the people to get power for himself by appearing empathetic, his actions don't invalidate the claims the people had brought. Shouldn't our response be to address the issues presented and work to resolve the underlying issues? Okay, this was actually given by Eric, who did not want to remain anonymous. So if you don't want to remain anonymous, I'm going to share your name on the episode. Thank you for the question, Eric, and uh, full disclosure, Eric was one of my young people when I was a youth pastor. Thanks so much for the question. Love it. Hope you're doing well, Eric. Love you. Love your family. So you got a great question here because I, I know you're referencing from these past two weeks in our talk on the life of David about Absalom using the issues and the complaints of the people to get power for himself. Well, that's really the issue there. The the, the issue here uh, that we were trying to present is that 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 underlying Absalom's feigned interest in people's justice was a quest for power. And that really is what I see in this, when I talk about the similarities between Absalom's quest for power and today's kind of social justice movement, I see it. And again, this is how I see it. People may see it differently than me. I see it as a quest in large part rooted in a desire for power. So why do I believe that? I, I believe that it's um, pretty blatant that uh, the movement Black Lives Matter was started uh, by self-professing trained Marxists, Marxism, which undercuts every society that's ever been tried in, which produces communism or socialism, the, the younger brother <laughs> of communism. It is a quest for power. It's it, it, it anywhere you see people saying that we need a revolution of the poor to take over because of this problem of poverty it has always decimated countries you can go back to the uh, the french revolution that was a a revolution of the po- of the poor and the disenfranchised and they ruined the country because of it uh, you can go to venezuela you can go to other countries cuba for instance other countries all over the world where marxism this idea that we need to produce equal results for people and if there's any inequity it is a sign of injustice number 1 it's not biblical and I'll show you that in just a moment. Number two is harmful to cultures because uh, God, and this might shock you, but God is not about equity. I, I know this, na- this word is it's a big buzzword right now, equity. Equity means everybody has to have equal results. It's not biblical. Uh, it's not even heavenly. Uh, when Jesus describes our rewards on this earth, there is no equity. Even when he describes working in the kingdom, there's no equity. Remember the parable of the talents, to one he gave five, to one he gave two, to one he gave one. That's not an equitable distribution of God's resources to those three servants, but it is the illustration of the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is a picture of what God wants for the kingdoms of this world. It is not equitable. Some people have five talents, three talents, some people have one talent. And you might say, well, that's because of their heritage and their background. But not necessarily. Not necessarily. If you look back across the, let's take America, for instance, uh, the the notable names of rich and important people in America in the 1950s are virtually unheard of in the 2020s, <laughs> like Rockefeller. Where's the rich Rockefeller right now? Where's the rich, um, oh, I forget, you know, the names from the Titanic, right? Where are their children now? And even the scripture says uh, an inheritance quickly gained will not be blessed in the end. Uh, there is a corruption to money in the heart of people. So I, I understand that we need to fight for justice, and you are exactly right, in we should address the issues of justice in our world as Christians. But when justice oftentimes is manipulated, the term justice is manipulated in many times to reflect this uh, idea of socialism. That's really what it is. Uh, so Like, take for instance, it's not just about social justice. A lot of politicians will throw out the term term environmental justice. They'll throw out the term gender justice. Uh, All all these kinds of justices. Well, what is justice? Justice is rightness. Who is the author of rightness or righteousness? God. Only God understands what is true and righteous. Only God understands what is equitable. Only God understands what is fair and just. And what you have on this earth right now— Corrupted by sin is injustice everywhere. And a lot of times people will manipulate injustices to gain power. And that was the heart of Absalom. And that's what I was presenting. It does not, I do not mean to present that content in the sense that, oh, because Absalom used justice in this way, we never should fight for justice. No, we should absolutely do justly. Micah 6 8. We absolutely should. You know not pervert the cause of justice we should do justice to the poor to the alien to the widow these are christian principles and and here's the other problem that i have with the current social justice movement it is in large part detached from christian principles uh black lives matter started with the expressed intent to separate itself from the Martin Luther King Jr. age of let's root this in the gospel, let's root this in the Christian faith. They deliberately separated out the Christian faith from the Black Lives Matter movement. Secondly, there's reports, and um, uh Voddie Bauckham talks about this in his book, that they actually practice forms of witchcraft, and they're not secret about it. They, they uh, perform seances and prayers to the dead uh, in their attempts to practice justice. This is why Christians have got to have a biblical mindset so that they don't come at worldly ideas of justice and just adopt it as if it's biblical truth. That's what Absalom represents for us. He represents this perverted form of justice that's not rooted in truth. It's rooted in a quest for power. And that's my problem with the current age in which we live. Now, individually as Christians, we have to look at our world and say, "Well, what, what what does God require of us in a world where there's inequity? What God requires of us is love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, what God requires of us is uh, give generously, um, support those who cannot support themselves. Uh, there's also another side of those issues, and this is important. Sometimes helping hurts. Sometimes helping hurts." I bring you back to Votie Bauckham's book and I hope you read Votie Bauckham's book Fault Lines because in the book he actually underlines or lists all the governmental organizations that are devoted to racial equity that have already existed since the 1960s and the size of the federal government and its budget to produce equality of outcomes is already enormous and a good case has been made and can be made that sometimes at some point, so much help and so much work to produce equality of outcomes actually undermines the work of justice. It actually creates a dependency culture and it actually creates an enslavement to government culture. I take you back to, um, I think Ronald Reagan said, a government who is big enough to provide everything that you need is also big enough to take it all away. And so there are questions that you have to ask about what is, what is required of the individual? What is required of government? So there's another good question about justice. What is required of our government and its leaders? Does government exist to provide for us? Scripture says no. Government exists, Romans 13, to punish the evildoer, to punish those who do wrong. If you want to escape the sword, do what is right, okay? Uh, There is no biblical precedent for the government providing for people's needs. There is none, well, you say, well, how should people be provided for their hands? They should work. They should earn a living. This is uh, out of First Thessalonians. This is Ephesians 4.28. People should work with their hands. When people cannot work with their hands, then you, of course, and you have poverty and those kind of things. Yes, there should be a safety net. There should be a social, uh, a social work to make sure that those people are provided for. We have to have compassion. But at the same time, we can understand that it is also injustice to exploit those safety nets, for selfish gain. And a lot of people do it. A lot of people do it. I've been, I'm sure you have, maybe you, maybe you can under, uh, relate to this. I've been to the uh, grocery store where people are using their, their, their WIC coupons to buy tobacco and alcohol. And I have seen that. And I think they've passed laws since then to, to curb that. But when we come to underlying, and, and the point that I want to just bear in on here is underlying issues of injustice. Make no mistake, there are going to be perverted enterprises that seek to use the term justice as a tool for consolidating their own power. Okay, that's exactly what Marxism does. That's exactly what happened in Soviet Russia. That's exactly what happened in Cuba under Castro. That's exactly what happened in Venezuela. And uh, that's what's coming in in you know in in a very subversive form because Americans are much smarter than these countries I'm sorry but they are but it's coming in a much more subversive form when we are indoctrinating our children into the idea that there are oppressors and there are oppressed and the oppressors are identified by their skin color this is CRT and and so everybody in this skin color is an oppressor and everybody in this skin color are outside of that skin color is an oppressed person these are unjust unjust uh definitions unjust definitions Uh, And we have to call it for what it is. Um, And then, of course, then there's the question of reparations and and paying back and all those kind of things. And I want to dive into that because I'm not afraid to, because you got to look at what does scripture teach about that? Well, if you go to Ezekiel, I think it's Ezekiel 28 or Ezekiel 18. I think it ends in eight, might be 38. Who knows? When God says the soul that sins shall die, the father shall not be punished for the sins of the children, nor the children be punished for the sins of the father's we're getting to this idea where we're actually perverting justice in the sense that now we're expecting children to pay back for the sins of their fathers. No Christian can get on the board with that. Now, at the same time, every Christian can get on board with help the poor, feed the hungry, visit the lonely. And I don't see a biblical mandate for government providing that. I just don't. Maybe you can show me a verse where you can find that. I don't see it. So that's my, that's my point. I think that you have to look at what I was talking about more specifically in that Absalom was using the lingo of justice to actually consolidate power for himself. And I see that happening right now in our cultural moment. Hope that helps. Thanks for the question. Love the question. Next question. Number three. I recently watched Johnny Carson interview Billy Graham on The Tonight Show, 1973. Yeah, I love those old Tonight Show episodes. And I was so surprised by Dr. Graham's description of heaven while answering one of Johnny's questions. Can you elaborate on the Bible verses Dr. Graham refers to? And this is the quote from Dr. Billy Graham. On Johnny Carson, it's going to be a place where we work, and I think we're going to be able to go from planet to planet and from one part of the universe to another, and I think we're going to be able to go as fast as thought, and I think we're going to have other worlds to conquer. We're going to have tremendous enterprises that we are going to do on other planets. There are many indications in the Bible about this, Dr. Billy Graham. Uh, Yeah. Well, here's what I would say. This is from Larissa, a big-time deep-end supporter. Thank you for your question, Larissa. Here's what I say right off the bat. He's exactly right. like. <laughs> um, but you want to know where the Bible verses are about this. So, okay, a place where we work. Bible verses for that. I'll give you a couple. Uh, they're, they're parables of, of eternal reward that Jesus mentions in uh, Matthew when he re- rewards the servants who did well on this earth with, their, with God's investment in them. And he says, here, take charge of 10 cities. So the eternal reward that Jesus envisions there in the final judgment is taking charge of 10 cities. So responsibility is the reward of the righteous. Kind of interesting. And uh, you know, big picture, I would say we have to get away from the idea that, that the, the, the picture of heaven is you're on the beach with a margarita in your hand uh, for all eternity. <laughs> That's not heaven. Um, secondly, work is not part of the curse of sin. Actually, work was part of the original design for creation. Genesis chapter 2, that the the Lord God put the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. Now, that is before sin comes into the world. Uh, Now, the Bible begins with a garden and it ends with a city, right? it ends with a gar- it begins with a garden ends with a city well you don't get from a garden to a city without a lot of work so even through the redemptive processes by which god has renewed the mind through the gospel of jesus christ and brought human beings back to reconciliation with him through the faith in christ jesus we see the advancement of technology we see the advancement of ruling subduing the earth that god originally gave us in perfection and beauty uh corrupted by sin but yet still advanced and technologically developed and cultivated That actually is the fulfillment of the cultural mandate given to us in Genesis chapter two, regardless of the sin and curse of the 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 the, the, the consequences of the curse of sin. So there is no biblical precedent where that work stops when Jesus Christ comes back and renews all things and brings a new heaven and a new earth to the to reality. There is no biblical scripture that speaks of us stopping working. Now, what is part of the curse is frustration. We are we are frustrated in our work, and so the frustration. When 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 God um, curses man, he says, you know, you, you curses the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles they shall produce for you, and to dust you shall return because from dust you came. So the sweat of your brow you shall produce, and it's going to be hard. And then women are going to bear children with pain. And so we see that the frustration of our work is part of the curse. Then he also says, uh, let me address going from planet to planet. I think what he's basing that on is that Jesus himself is alive and in the flesh somewhere. And he's not currently in this room in the flesh, at least as far as I know. And he's not in your room. He is somewhere, though, because he didn't give up his heavenly body. He had a resurrected body. And if you read the narratives of the resurrection reality of Jesus, he goes from place to place. He pops in. He pops out. He walks through walls. Uh, he appears at one moment with the men on the road to Emmaus, and then the moment, next moment he's in the room with the disciples, and then he disappears and he reappears. And so I think that's the precedent on which Billy Graham builds that statement. Uh, and then from one part of the universe to another, I believe, is just because the whole of creation is going to be renewed and, and explored. Lord in the, in the heavenly realm. And then uh, he says, I think we're going to be able to go as fast as thought. Again, that kind of under uh, uh, that I already spoken to that. And I think we're going to have other worlds to conquer. I a hundred percent agree with that. And we're going to have tremendous enterprises on other planets. Yes. Many indications because the heavens are going to be restored. The heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, And on this earth, we have the promise that the that the, the knowledge of god shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea but uh sorry the glory of god shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea but that's in this age i believe fundamentally 100% uh that we are going to continue exploration continue human advancement to the glory of god without sin corrupting our advancements without sin corrupting our hearts and we are going to explore if if heaven is us sitting on um a lounge chair on the beach with a margarita in her hand, we're all going to be bored stiff in about five hours. Look, it's nice to go to vacation and do that for a week, but it's not the way to live. Nobody can say that they enjoy that full time. So that's where that comes from. I think there are many other passages that you can go to is particularly in Isaiah chapter 60, where it talks about all the kingdoms of the earth shall come and bring their wares into the city of, of God, uh, talking about the the fulfillment of the age. So you've got a lot of Bible verses. I don't have the chapters and verses for you, but I know where you can find them. The narratives of Jesus's re- ascension, uh, resurrection and ascension, uh, Revelation chapter 20, 21, 22, and Isaiah chapter 60. Check, a, Take a look at those. I hope that helps. And thanks for the question. And won't it be fun? Won't it be fun to visit Venus for the weekend? <laughs> All right. Question number four. Can the Bible and science go hand in hand? And this is from Bill Bobayaka, Bobayaka. I hope I got that name right. Can the Bible and science go hand in hand? Yes. In fact, they always did go hand in hand. This is a very recent development wherein science is uh, used as an enemy of faith. There, there, There's really no historical precedent for this other than the postmodern age. So you get the... Um, uh, you actually get science out of the church. People don't realize this. And I've covered this before on the deep end. In fact, if you go all the way back to season one of the deep end, I think it's only available on Facebook. It might be on YouTube now too. Season one, like part two of first Corinthians, when we talk about is, is uh biblical Christianity for idiots or stupid people? And the answer is absolutely not. And then we talk about science and we talk about scripture and we saw and i unpacked in that episode i believe the royal society which was an offshoot of the anglican church the church of england uh, founded by isaac newton and other scientists uh, who believe the world was not a mystery and could be scientifically discovered and we have a biblical mandate i.e the creation mandate the 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 creation, the cultivation, uh, biblical mandate of cultivation in Genesis chapter one to explore, to develop, to make tools of creation and, and flourish as humans. Science, modern science today, and a lot of people don't even know this, has its roots in the biblical church. <laughs> it's just a fact. And I take you to uh, rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who just died this past year who puts it so well in his book and there's a book that you can find on from him about science and religion and I don't know the name I wish I did but I'm reading I've read I've read through it and here's here, here, here's how he draws that relationship science and faith. science explains what is and religion explains why it is and what it's for. So science can tell you what a molecule is, uh, how they operate uh, science can tell us, For instance, that the sun does not circle the earth. The earth circles the sun. And then religion comes along and says, let me tell you why that is. Because we humans are not the center of the universe. The son of God is. So the creation actually, and I love this because you'll find more than you can imagine evidences of this, how scientific discovery Unpacks uh, biblical truth over and over and over again. So we talk about having a Copernican revolution as people of faith. The Copernican revolution is the idea that you realize that you are not the center of the universe because before Copernicus, people believed that the Earth was the center of the universe and everything revolved around it, including the sun. And it, and Copernicus comes and says, no, that doesn't work. The science doesn't work that way. Actually, we revolve on the sun. And they persecuted him. I think they tried to kill him for it. And so. The Copernican revolution is to say, I am coming to the realization that I'm not the center of the universe. God is the son of God. The son of God is the center of all things. And I am made to revolve around him, not he around me. So there you go. There's Bible and science going hand in hand. Another example, when the scripture says, uh, God spoke, let there be light. And there was light. Well, the word in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament verse is a photon. Uh, Light bursts out and exploded into space and scattered, well, if you read the narrative of the big Bang theory, that's the exact description of the big Bang theory that there was a sudden explosion of light, and photon particles scattered into space. <laughs> just I love when the Bible comes together with science because it just happens again and again and again, and if you follow me on Twitter by the way, at Tim Hatch Live. Uh, I usually find these on a regular basis and I post them for you on how often science and the Bible go hand in hand. Like, let's just talk about abortion, for instance. The abortion debate has, to, has centers on one simple question, all right? The, the one simple question on the, on the abortion debate is this, is the child a human being in the mother's womb? Now, when I was in junior high, someone explained to me that that child was just a glob of cells and it wasn't a human being yet. And now scientific discovery through ultrasound technology, through radioactive vision, uh, we can see into the belly of the mother and in 3D graphic detail, understand that that is a human being. It is not a glob of cells. It has a heartbeat at what? I don't know. Somebody can tell me that in the comments below really early. It feels pain. Now there's studies showing us that it feels pain at 12 weeks. Um, So it is a human being. Science was wrong. The science that was trying to convince us for the sake of our selfishness, that we can just destroy the the, 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 the fetus because it's just a cloud of cells. Actually, the Bible, which said thousands of years ago, you knit me together in my mother's womb, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, science that said, uh, the, the Bible that said in Jeremiah 1, 5, before, I, before you were in the womb, I knew you. Uh, the, the, the theology of humanity goes even back before you're in the womb, okay? And science is catching up to that. Science is proving once and Uh, time and time again, that God was right about these, these truths. And this happens on a regular basis. It's really wonderful to see. So yes, long answer to a very short question. Science and Bible can go hand in hand. Okay. Question number five, loved Bonhoeffer. And this is the book I talked about a couple of weeks ago on the deep end. How do you feel about him being a Christian pastor and trying to end Hitler's life I first thought that I would do the same given the chance, but realized after it makes me no better than Hitler uh, to kill also. All right. Well, this is a good question. I really appreciate the question. Um, I'm not sure who asked it. I'm sorry. I forgot. How do I feel about him being a Christian pastor and trying to end Hitler's life? Personally, I don't have a problem with it. Um, at the same time reading the book, I realized that it was by divine providence that God kept him from doing it. And I think that that's what God will do with all of his saints. He will, he will in many ways shield them from disastrous activity. Uh, so, you know, he uh, felt a moral compulsion that one lesser evil would be better off than a greater, more substantial evil. And who can argue with that? Okay, so there is also the biblical precedent of holy war when God tells Joshua and the Israelites to go in and evade the promised land and destroy every living thing, including women and children. We modern people say, that's horrible. How could they do that? But modern people today abort children in the womb who have never had a chance to sin. And secondly, um, there is something to be said for cultures coming to a place where there is no redeemable quality to them. Uh, And we we have seen that in, in every age where people become so utterly corrupt as a culture. They are irredeemable. Um, And that's what Hitler's revolution was. That the Second World War was just in, it was eliminating a anti-human force in the world that needed to be eradicated. So I don't think it was um, necessarily evil of Bonhoeffer trying to end Hitler's life. I think that God providentially, uh, uh, what do I want to say? Restrained him. From doing it. And uh, I would disagree with you that killing Hitler would not make you equal to Hitler. (laughs) I would definitely disagree with that. Hitler was a madman who was bent on creating a world of madmen who hated every other people group on the planet except the Aryan race. And to kill that one madman is a far lesser evil than to wipe out every other race on the planet. So... That's my question, answer to that question. I hope it helps. Thanks for the question. Okay, let's go forward, and we're getting some chat now. And yeah, let me just put that up on the screen. If you're on Tim Hatch Live YouTube slash Tim Hatch Live, thanks for joining us. Those of you watching, so glad that you're here. I will uh, get to these. I will get to these questions in a moment. Let me let me prioritize the questions that came in online. So, question number six. Here we go. Uh, question. God gave us significant intelligence to figure out scientific mysteries such as viruses and genetic codes and how to heal using pharmaceutical medicine. However, I'm struggling with this new movement in scientific thought and human engineering, i.e. changing of sex of an unborn baby or experiments using stem cells of aborted babies. I feel we are trying to play God with humans, and at some point we have overstepped. How will God respond? Well, that is a very, very important question. It's an ethical question. Uh, That's the difference between ethics and morals. This is a question of what should we do with what we know? Um, that's what ethics are. And so, uh, yes, God gave us intelligence to figure out scientific mysteries and you're right. And the question for all scientific discovery is how does this help human beings flourish? And that means all human beings flourish. So the, 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 the uh, the idea also to, let me just, let me just make some corrections here, changing the sex of an unborn baby. Nobody's doing that. Um, maybe people are having uh, selective abortions because of the sex of the baby, which I agree with is immoral. All abortion is immoral. Um, Experiments using stem cells of aborted babies, I also believe is immoral. Uh, But again, this is, you know, every society in human history has had some semblance of corrupted immorality to it that underpins its objective goals. So the objective goal of the... uh, it highly individualized West, the objective goal, and you need to understand there's a larger framework of understanding to this question. The objective goal of the secular, highly individualized West is the individual's happiness. Really, that's the, that's the archetype of our, <laughs> of our purpose. We are here to be happy and anything that gets in the way of my happiness must be eradicated or used to achieve the purpose of me being happy. This is a fundamentally corrupted view of the human condition and the human purpose. We are not on this planet to be happy. We are on this planet. Christians believe, of course, from scripture to the glory of God. That's why Paul can rejoice in his death. As long as his death serves the glory of God, he rejoices in his sufferings. So long as the gospel is preached and the glory of God is made real in the world. So, In the secular realm, the secular world, humans have corrupted their understanding of the human nature and the human experience to serve themselves. In this age, the idea of the individual being happy above all. It has not always been that case. Before the secularized West, there was the, and there still is, the secular East, or I would call it the spiritual or mystic East, which is the, the fundamental goal of the human experience is for honor or for f- familial honor, like your name and your reputation passed down to generations and, and how your children fare. That's actually what your goal is. Your goal is to make sure that your children represent your family and your family's name well, and they exceed uh, all of the families around. That's the honor shame culture. We are in the individualistic, selfish me culture. Both are wrong, both are corrupted. We exist for the glory of God. We exist to love Him first and foremost and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so, all the experiments using test stem cells for aborted babies is in the pursuit of uh, our own happiness, our own individual self actualization. Um, and, then, and then, you're very right when you say we are trying to play God uh, with humans and we've overstepped. But I would just say to this that we have always overstepped. It has always been the case. Um, we overstepped uh, playing God when when we enslaved black people in this country. We overstepped playing God when uh, we would uh, force children to work in sweatshops. We overstepped playing God when we treated women as second-class citizens. So these are these are not just issues on abortion and they're not just issues on vaccines and viruses these are these are whole life issues and so christians have to understand that we are on this earth for the glory of God, and everything outside of the Christian faith typically revolves around the glory of mankind. As St. Augustine famously put it in the fourth century, in the beginning, God created man in his image. And ever since sin, man has been repaying the favor. That is, we have been casting God in our own image. We've been making God like us. Uh, And a God that is like you is a God of your own making, a God that never confronts you, a God that never corrects you, a God that never rebukes you, a God that never offends you is a God of your own making and a God of your own devices. And it is not the God of the universe, the objective God of the universe. And so everything that we see in our world in terms of scientific discovery has that stain of human pride on it, wherein we use the resources, the knowledge of, of our current time to serve our own ends, our own glorification. And we are always overstepping God. Even Christians overstep God. When we, you know, we think it's a secular problem. It's actually a Christian problem. A lot of Christians believe that their happiness is the ultimate goal of their life. And they'll even use scripture to use this, to to back up this claim. As long as I'm happy, I know I'm in God's will. Well, who says Jesus was a hundred percent in God's will as he was hanging from that cross? Do you think he was happy in that moment? He looked beyond that moment. He scorned the shame of the moment because of the joy that was laid up before him. Hebrews chapter twelve: the joy of you and I knowing Christ, knowing God, being reunited and reconciled back to Him. So there is uh, tons of evidence from Scripture where people suffered unto the glory of God. And they suffered well because they did not live for their own happiness and temporal pleasures, but they lived for God's purposes. And sometimes God's purposes were accomplished through their suffering and pain. I hope that helps. Oh, let me get back. No, I don't want to stop because I wanted to get back to my thought. Christians do this thing with happiness too. Like, and I I was talking about this this past week in my church about pursuing our purposes when Christians, I always, my, my red flags go up in my head when I think about Christians saying, oh, I want to find my purpose in God. But usually what they mean by that is I want to um, be special. I want to be important. I want to be in front of people. And that's not necessarily a purpose that God has made you for. You might be in front of people, but are you in front of people for his glory? Are you in front of people to make him known? Are you in front of people to say he must increase and I must decrease? That's, that's living in the important places for the glory of God. A lot of people think. That they're only important because they are in front of people or they're on stage at a church. And we and that selfish, corrupted human nature, which comes with us into the new birth experience, uh, that flesh still tries to seek its own glory and undermine the glory of God. Long answer, but to a very important question. And you are 100% right. And I hope I helped unpack that. Thank you so much for the question. Let's go to question number seven. How should we behave towards the gender crisis affecting our society? I don't know if, I don't know if loving the sinner is the answer anymore. All right. Um, this is a great question. And I, and I hear in the question frustration that I share, which is it's just never ending. Like, can June just end, please? <laughs> I'm getting to that point. I don't know if you are. But can June just please end the month-long celebration of human degradation, it wears on us as christians because obviously we feel alienated from our own country we feel alienated from the world because it's everywhere in every facet of society and so it's just kind of ironic and i think it's um, symptomatic of the times in which we were in that may uh, the last monday in may if i'm not mistaken the last monday or the fourth monday in may is a is a day on which we celebrate or or not celebrate but we honor those who gave their lives Who died so that we might be free? And that day, one 24-hour period, we call it Memorial Day, is followed by a month-long celebration of sexual deviancy and corrupted, corrupted human nature. It's just symptom. I think that is a symptom of the times. We are as a culture in Romans chapter one verse 24. Though they knew God, they rejected God and did not worship Him as God, but uh, forsook him and worshiped the creation rather than the creator who's forever praised, amen. And then God gave them over to the lust of the flesh. We are in Romans chapter one, verse 24 to 28. That's where we are as a as a culture right now. Uh, and it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And I would say this, maybe this is going to hot take here, controversial take. <laughs> maybe it's time for it to get really bad. Like maybe we should be saying, God, just just accelerate this. Because you know what? Humans need to see the consequences of their own sinfulness. And they've been shielded from it for so long that they think they can get away with it. And the patience of God is always available, but at some point it runs out. And then we experience the wrath of God along the way, even under the patience of God, as we experience the passive wrath of God, uh, the consequence of our own actions. And we realize, like the prodigal son, that we're feeding pigs. And maybe that's what needs to happen in our society. And maybe, and again, these are a lot of maybes, not definitives, but maybes that God is using the degradation of our society to darken it so that the light of God's glory can shine ever brighter in the church and understand. And I think it's important for Christians to get their minds wrapped around one thing during pride month. Who are you praying for to come to Christ? Who at your office, who in your family, Name a name. Like, is there someone you're praying for to know Jesus in the middle of pride month? Because that might be the best thing Christians can do right now. Don't get all worked up over the sinfulness of mankind. Don't, don't, even the Bible says, don't fret when you see sinners prosper in the way. Don't fret. Why? Because they're on slippery ground and God will make them fall very, very shortly. It's just a matter of time. But in the midst of that, we don't cheer on their slipping. We don't cheer on their their um their their uh decay we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth and we are here to reach them christ was sent into this earth to reach to seek and to save that which was lost when he goes to the house of zacchaeus he is he is harassed for loving the sinner and so it does not matter how bad the sinner is in our minds it only matters how precious the sinner is in god's heart And so the answer of loving the sinner, I'm sorry, the solution of loving the sinner is still the answer in that Christ loves sinners. And by the way, as a Christian, we do not acknowledge we are sinless. We acknowledge that we are sinners saved by grace and we continually sin. Romans chapter 7, when Paul says, I still sin, I still do the things I don't want to do. Uh, who will save me from this body of death, wretched man that I am? I mean, he's a man who is very acquainted with the fact that of all the sinners that, he's, that he knows, he's number one. When you get to Ephesians chapter 3, he says, I'm the chief of sinners, right? Uh, when you get to 2 Timothy chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians 3, he says, I'm the least of the saints, in Second Timothy four, a book that he wrote many many years later, he says, "I am the I am the chief of sinners." So he goes from least of the saints to chief of sinners. Like the 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 deeper that Paul grows into Christ, the more awareness of his own sinfulness he comes to. That's Christian discipleship. Christian discipleship is not lobbing bombs at secular people saying, "How dare you be secular and sinful?" Christian discipleship is, "God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I need your grace and forgiveness." And then, in your love for my sin, for my soul, in spite of my sin, Heavenly Father, would you put a love in my soul and my heart for the sinners that I see in my world who just tend to sin differently than me? So that's how I think we should behave. I think we should stop throwing. Now, you say, well, Pastor Tim, you throw a lot of bombs on the deep end. And I get it. What you interpret as bombs is just me informing you. I am informing Christians. The, the deep end is a show directed towards Christians. You have to understand that on how to interpret the times in which they live through the scripture. So I'm not, I'm not sitting here on the deep end saying, hey, you homosexuals who don't know Christ, stop being homosexual. That's not my message to homosexuals. My message to homosexuals is come to Christ. Come to Christ. That's it. Repent. Turn to him. Because if, if someone genuinely comes to Christ, they will follow the shepherd's voice. They will repent from their sin and they will seek to glorify God in their being even though they will continually fail in many respects. The heart is changed and the fruit of their lives will transform when the root has been uh, redeemed and brought to Christ. Okay, I hope that helps. Anyway, Uh, let's get on with the next question Uh, on the screen. Good to have some chat, guys. Keep the chats up. Thank you so much. This is the last question that came in, so I will be going to the chat questions shortly. Question number eight. Some Christian leaders are discussing not allowing people who are openly and, more importantly, unrepentantly sinning leading by leading people down a path that leads to death, abortion, and gayness, or homosexuality. <laughs> should Christian leaders decide who receives communion and how can they know a person's heart? So this, uh, this is from Tony C., an elder in my church. Thank you, Tony, for the question. Uh, the question is, should... Catholic priests deny Joe Biden communion because he is so pro-abortion in his policies. And this is a question for Catholic leaders, because their understanding of communion is different than my—their underst- understanding of the Eucharist is different than my my understanding of communion. Their, uh, it's a sacrament for the Catholic leaders, and it is a means of grace. It is a way that you are uh, continually brought closer to God and redeemed. That is not the Protestant definition, of the eucharist or communion table in the communion table we come to the table to examine ourselves and to symbolically and physically train our minds and remind ourselves that we are receiving into ourselves the death of christ so that the life of christ might be born out of ourselves so the question then is a theological ecclesiological ecclesia ecclesiastical I try to get fancy with my words, and there I go. Ecclesiastical uh, uh, debate for Catholics to have regarding their view of the Eucharist. And I, as a Protestant minister, I have nothing to say about how they decide to um, play out their theology. I will say that we, as Christians, probably shouldn't play games with—and Christian leaders—probably shouldn't play too fast and loose with— Public personas, ie, what news organizations say about a leader or say about somebody else, um, and then interpret how we're going to treat that person according to our faith. That's where I would say, that's what I would come down on. I would say, look, there's far too much um, news opinion. and the news opinion uh, usually lumps people into groups and then we're taught with 24 hour news stations to hate the person in the other group and therefore now deny fellowship, deny relationship, deny community. This is why parents and children are divided because of politics today. This is why uh, colors are divided today based on politics, because we are uh, 24 hours a day on on several different channels taught to hate the other group because they're so much more evil than us. I, I see it in that in the life of Jesus when he was brought before the woman caught in the act of adultery. And they say, the law says stoner, what do you say? And he knew that they were putting a trap from because if he said stoner, he would have broken Roman law by executing a woman with capital punishment with no authority to do so. And if he had said, let her go, he would have broken the mosaic law by saying that the which says specifically that the adulterer should be stoned to death. And he saw through their deceptivity, their duplicity and said, you know what? Let's do this. Who doesn't have sin? You cast the first stone. And man, it was just a fantastic moment because what does the scripture say? Beginning with the oldest, they start to drop their stones and they leave. Um, interesting that the oldest start first. And again, it goes back to what I talked about with, with Paul. The deeper and longer that we are Christians, the more sinfulness we are aware of in ourselves. Anyway, that being said, um, I would say this. The Catholics have to make that decision for themselves. If I was the pastor of Joe Biden, if I was the pastor of some, you know, democratic pro-abortion politician and they were coming to my church and they wanted to take communion i would not personally deny them because that's not our ecclesiastical uh, program we don't we don't get to decide who's saved and who's not we are here to feed the sheep and the lord knows those who are his and communion is not a sacrament in my faith tradition it is a memorial of the death of christ so that we look forward to the return of christ so that's like the best answer, non-answer I give today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, should, let me just answer that last part. Should Christian leaders decide who received communion? Yeah, that's why I, I just did the answer to that. How can they know a person's heart? We can't oftentimes. Um, but we can separate policy from heart. Like this is a person who is promoting abortion very viciously. And I can understand the problems that the Catholic Church has with that. I can understand the problems that the, that the Catholic Church has with that. Definitely. Uh, okay. So that's the questions that were sent in. Uh, we got maybe some time. Let's see. Yeah. Four minutes. Cause I want to keep this under an hour. Let's go to your chats and we will take a look, see at where we are at with the chat. Um, I'm just going to read, excuse me, as we just go through this. How would you address, this is Jack Schianati. How would you address parents about CRT? It's being deployed in my town and I see no pushback at all. Crickets. Okay. So go back and watch the episode in which I talked about uh, Vodi Bauckham's book Fault Lines and I cannot recommend that book enough Vodi Dr. Vodi Bauckham Fault Lines uh, the book is a number one bestseller and it is the greatest resource that you will ever get on CRT and if you just want to get the synopsis go back a few episodes where I talk about that we can put that in the comments below one of my team members will put that in the comments below where you can maybe look up that uh, go back to that episode and read on CRT and why it's so destructive as parents you've got to have the conversation with your children at home You've got to have the conversation early, and you have got to have the conversation regularly. And you have to ask your kids what they're learning at school. The greatest fruit, the, the maybe the best benefit of all of this nonsense that's being foisted upon our children in the public schools is number one: parents have got to be far more intentional about having these conversations with their kids, so that they have more of a relationship structure at home where they are teaching their kids as the Bible programs us, as the Bible, as the Bible presents to us in Deuteronomy. It's our job as parents to teach our children. It's our job as parents in Ephesians six six to Educate our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, and maybe this is a wake-up call to Christian parents: to they stop letting the public school system be the chief educator of your children, and you need to take responsibility for that. Uh, All pink says, "Hi Tim, I don't have a question, but I thank you for doing this." Well, thank you. You do have a question now. What do you say to people that believe being gay and Christian is okay? Many of what I've seen slash heard twist the scripture to justify their lifestyle. They absolutely do. But all people do that. All people justify their own sin with the scripture. Uh, This is nothing new. Uh, This is from the Garden of Eden. (laughs) Think about it. All of our issues really stem back to Genesis chapter 3 because Adam uh, eats the fruit and he blames Eve. He justifies his sin by blaming the woman. The woman justifies her sin by blaming the serpent oh and by the way they also subversively blame god because god, they're both like yeah well you gave me the woman the, the man's like you gave me the woman and the woman's like you made the serpent." so really god is your fault and that's exactly what you see happening in the gay movement which is uh in the homosexual movement which is god made me this way um no god did not make you this way you are born a sinner you are born wrong so that's why we believe in the new birth we believe in being born again and um so this is what I say to people who believe that you are not born gay. You are born a sinner. Okay. I am born as I was born a sinner and I need redemption. Redemption is God purchasing me back out of the bondage to sin. See, sin is not something that I do. It's something that I am slaved by. It is something that is a part of my identity. So I am born a sinner and that sin uh, plays itself out in any number of events and any number of different diverse activities in all kinds of different people. I need redemption. I need, I need the power of the cross to break the power of sin off of my life, set me free from slave, enslavement to sin, and make me a slave to righteousness. That's what I say. And the idea that I can twist scripture to justify my, my own lifestyle is nothing new. I am not being original. I am doing exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Thank you for the question uh marcia carvalho love listening to this here in macau oh macau well god bless you it's a season of so many changes and recess i think we really need to know where we stand yes you are right ken says is the rise of crypto, crypto cryptocurrency a first signal of a one world currency that's a good question ken full disclosure i'm invested in bitcoin <laughs> um You know, know obviously, cryptocurrency is uh, decentralized. There's no government backing to it. And uh, it's going to be interesting what happens in the future with it. Invest with caution. I think there's a lot more other signals of a one-world government, too, than just cryptocurrency. I think you can see that uh, President Biden is the most pro-globalist president we've ever had uh, in our history ironically people don't read you got to go back and read washington's uh farewell address george washington's farewell address who said don't involve yourself in international affairs he knew <laughs> he knew that that would be very costly to america's future and yet we have ignored that ever since he was president of course everybody calls him racist now so what does he know um and i said that tongue in cheek tim olvas god bless you keep speaking the truth thank you Eliana. hi pastor tim concerning the giant statue that has come to 21 cities do you believe it is a precedent to what john saw he had power to give life to the image of the beast i don't know what that is the giant statue i'm sorry i'm not aware of that if i if i was aware of that i will i would have answered i don't know what that is and uh, there's a deep end episode for you um jack's giannotti about crt it is season four episode 21 and I delve detail, in detail into the book see, uh, Fault Lines by Dr. Vody Bakken. Anyway, guys, thanks for being here. I don't want to take too much of your time. I know I want to try to keep these an hour or less. And I think I answered 11 questions. So that's how it's going to go. If you want to be part of the next one in two weeks, uh, you can do two things. You can fill in the comments below a question that you might have. We'll save it for the next two weeks. Or you can send another question to... Uh, ask at timhatch. ask at TimHatchLive.com. So those are your options. Ask at TimHatchLive.com. And if you want to be anonymous, tell me you want to be anonymous. If you don't care, I'll mention your name. But thanks for being here. I look forward to seeing you guys next time uh, on The Deep End, Tuesday night, 7.30. (laughs) Bye-bye.